Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I would literally be driving uh, around the city or, you know, the bridges by my house. I used to get the food from 7-Elevens, you know, that they were going to throw away. And just because of the date, even though it wasn't bad, but per their rules, they have to throw it away. And I literally, they used to tell me no because they didn't want to get sued. But I was persistent and I just kept going back. Please, man, can I get it? Like, can I get it? I don't want to dig it out the trash, but I will. Three or so years into that, I'd gained about 50 pounds. My cholesterol, my blood pressure, everything was going in the wrong direction. I walked into a wall, not meaning to. Thought I was having a heart attack or a stroke. Turns out it was a severely inflamed pinched nerve. That was my wake-up call. You got to do something differently. At one point, I started to question whether I was actually losing it because I wasn't reactive to so many of the things that other people were reactive to. And I was like, well, maybe I'm the one who's losing it and they've got it all together. And that's the psychological challenge of being in an environment where it's so chaotic and nothing is normal. We called up LAPD and I said, what would it cost for us to shut down Hollywood Boulevard? And the cop laughed. He's like, they don't shut down Hollywood Boulevard for a race or for kids in a shelter as a charity run. They shut that down for like the Academy Awards when they're shooting a scene out of Transformers or something. They're not going to do that for some kids at the Gramercy Place homeless shelter. And I was like, oh, man. I just had zero money. And I guess at that point I was 26 or 27. Mm -hmm. And I just had zero dollars. And the company was paying me an amount that just got me by without, I mean, I had nothing. I had projects that I worked for years that fell through. I had relationships that I thought, oh, he's the one. And he was not the one at all. <laughs> he, just, he went out and found another one. <laughs> I had heartbreaks. I had times where I was broke. And I had times where I didn't know what to do with myself. I knew spirit and I knew the light, but I didn't know how to translate it. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they have identified with as their mission. And in doing so, they have been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And today we have our annual compilation episode. The theme this year is making something out of nothing. So I went through the archive and I found guests and hand-selected clips from those episodes 
where the guests created their movement from nothing and told the story of how it happened, meaning they told the story of how they took action on their inner calling without having all of the resources or the know-how that we sometimes think we need in order to do what's in our heart. And what their stories illustrate is that our heart is rarely going to direct us to do something that we feel prepared to do beforehand. Instead, we're going to have to trust that the desire to follow the calling itself is our credential. It is our sign that we are ready to take the next step. And with each subsequent step, so long as we keep trusting that process, we're going to get the resources that we need to prepare us for the next step, right when we need it, and oftentimes in the most unexpected way. So in this compilation, we're going to be hearing from Sebastian Terry, who created 100 Things. We're going to hear from best-selling author Agapi Stasinopoulos. We're going to hear from former inmate turned author Shaka Senghor. We're going to hear from Ken Nwadiki Jr., who is also known as the Free Hugs Guy. We'll hear stories from a conscious comedian named Jay Smiles, as well as from Bear Truth founder Joseph Bradford. And each clip is going to be about 15 to 20 minutes long. And I'll put the individual episode numbers both in the introduction to the clip as well as in the show notes in case you want to go back and listen to their entire episode, which I highly recommend doing. So to kick things off, in this first clip, we're going to hear from Sebastian Terry of episode 91. Sebastian, who goes by the name Seb, quit his day job to start a movement called 100 Things, which is a list of the things that he felt would bring him happiness, very simply. Now, what's interesting about Seb's story is he basically had no money at that time. It was just an idea that he had been carrying around with him for years. And then after hitting rock bottom financially, he decided that that was going to be the time to go all in on his idea of doing these 100 things. And of course, after starting to achieve the things on his list, he started getting inspired to help other people do things that brought them happiness. And in the process, Seb got to have some amazing experiences while also participating in the immovable power of kindness. Okay, so let's go to the clip to hear the story in Seb's own words. I didn't have any money. I just had zero money. And I guess at that point I was 26 or 27. Mm -hmm. And I just had zero dollars and I was the, the company was paying me an amount that just got me by without, I mean, I had nothing. And Dave asked me to go out for dinner one night with him for his work thing. He worked in hospitality. And so I went purely because I couldn't afford to eat by myself. And so I ended up with this like lavish dinner, really lovely at this place in Circular Quay in Sydney. And it was Dave next to me and all his colleagues or employees actually and everyone was at like silver service and we we're getting wine poured. And it was all really lovely. It was great. And then I just remember looking around going, what am I doing? I am 27 years old. I can't afford to buy myself a meal. Even if I could, I wouldn't be here. I'm purely here because <laughs> I'm purely here because I need to eat. And mm -hmm. I said, I just got quite upset. And I looked at Dave and I said, mate, I'm going to go. 
and I was getting a little emotional, but I held it together. I walked out. I went to the ferry to get from Circular Quay to Manly, where I was living then, and I missed the last ferry, meaning that I had to get a taxi home, which cost more. So I had to walk back into the restaurant and go, by the way, Dave, uh, I still am leaving, but I need money for a taxi. <laughs> so he gave me money for a taxi. And then, yeah, I, I you know, left Circular Quay. I was going over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and I just burst out crying. And I didn't really know why, to be honest. I just burst out crying. And I think my girlfriend at the time was in the cab with me. It's funny how you sort of forget things. I think my girlfriend was in there. And she said, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't know. And so we went home, had a very somber evening by myself. And the next day I woke up and I just remembered this list that was hidden in a drawer in my room that I had forgotten about for two and a half years. So I pulled my drawer open. I got my list out, like my actual list of 100 things, which was there. And I have never felt so motivated in my life. I went down to Humphreys News Agency in Manly. I bought a map of the world, like a, just like a, f- a foldable map, map of the world. I put it on the wall and I got 100 sticky notes and wrote every one of my goals on that and then stuck it all on the wall on the map to represent what I wanted to do in my life in that moment. And for the next, well, that day, certainly, I couldn't work. I was just looking at the thing, thinking about all these possibilities. I worked really hard when something's put in front of me. And I remember thinking, imagine if I just took the focus that I've got on my laptop right now and I just moved it and I just went like that to a map on a wall that represented for me an opportunity to be happy. And I thought I would be happy. And that was it. I rang up Dave and I said, mate, as soon as we pay the business off, I've got to leave. And he said, why? And I said, I've got a list of a hundred things. I've got to go and do them. And that was it. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. But you were broke. Like, what was the plan? To, how were you going to pay your bills? How were you going to take your girlfriend out to dinner? How were you going to yeah. <laughs> you know, get dental care? Well, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I didn't think about dental care, I'll be honest. I did think <laughs> I th- there was money in the business, not a lot. And so I said to Dave, when we pay it off, as soon as we pay it, I'm happy to work for, you know, whatever I was working for at the time. It wasn't a lot. I think he gave me like a, a bit of a bolster each week, but just so I could like go and do one additional thing perhaps. My thinking was as soon as we paid the business off, we'd have maybe a little bit extra. As soon as we paid it off, I'm not a business person, but I thought if long as we pay it off and then a bit more, we can take that. So I think I took $8,000 from the company and we paid the business off. I think it was eight. It might've been 11. Do you know? I don't. I just know that Dave kind of pushed back a little bit when you told him about your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. He was like, "What? Are, that's stupid. You're, <laughs> you're in your late 20s. What do you mean? You're going to take off for a trip around the world, an endless trip check off things like skydive naked or do an Olympic ski jump or become an ordained wedding minister. Like that's ridiculous. But I tell you what, I'm not saying this for effect. I knew, I just knew I had to do it. There was no, no convincing me otherwise because we all think we know what's good for other people. You know, we might have some kind of idea, but if, if someone knows, they know. And, and I knew, I knew no one supported me. My mum cried when I told her. My sister. <laughs> they weren't tears of joy. Nope, they were not. And they, and they weren't for a long time. They weren't for a long time. My dad was kind of like, he was the only one. My dad's a bit of a renegade. And he was like, yeah, I get it. But still, that might have been the most positive comment I got. Everyone else was like, that is. What about your yeah. girlfriend? What, what was her response? Well, after that night where I realized, oh, God. She's great, by the way. She ended up marrying a friend of mine. She's fantastic. But after I showed her my map on the wall of 100 things, she looked at it and she said, are we doing this together? Or And, <laughs> and I remember, like, it, it wasn't like a, to get away from her at all. I had the same kind of realisation that I had had earlier in Canada when I learned that Chris passed away, and that was I just don't know who I am. And I still mm-hmm. did two and a half years later. But that list that resurfaced as I saw it was my way to work it out, and that is a journey I knew I had to take on myself. Talk about some of the next steps. So once you commit it to your mission and you didn't believe in the word bucket list because you thought that was too much associated with death, right? Yeah. What were some of the first steps such as Googling pen pals in prison and, and things like that? Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, okay. So I committed to my list. I told Dave when we pay the company off, I've, I've got to go. And that was, it was, it was fine. He, he just, as a friend was like, that makes no sense, but sure. So whilst in Sydney, I started thinking, I'm so action-based now. I never used to be. I was like, what can I do? I can't leave the country yet. I've got to pay the business off. What can I do for my list whilst I'm here? So I looked at my list and I used it as a reference point from that moment on in my life. And I would go, right, speed dating. I can do that in Sydney. So I went speed dating. Hilarious. I wanted to visit an inmate on death row. I just to kind of talk to someone that I would never speak to on any other occasion. So I Googled death row pen pals and you can do it right now. In fact, I'm going to do it right now as I tell this story because I keep telling people it's this easy. I just want to make sure I'm not lying. So I Googled death row pen pals and I was met with a database. Look, globalpenfriends.com. No, actually, that's not it. (laughs) That's something different. But you can, (laughs) you can Google it and you're met with a database of thousands of people who are on death row who are looking to connect. Yeah, first one, death row pen pals, writerprisoner.com for anyone who's interested. And you get to read their profiles and they have a photo and they have their story. Some of them admit to what they've done. Some say I'm here for the wrong reasons, but I've turned to God. So that was it. So I started, I wrote a letter. This guy had an address. So I just wrote a handwritten letter 
to this guy called James or J-Lock. And he was in there for a crime he didn't commit. Sounds like the A-team, by the way. <laughs> and he just, I don't know, for whatever reason, he, out of the, many of the profiles that I read, I spoke to this one guy, I read his and I thought, that's yeah, I'll do that. So I, I wrote him a letter. Two weeks later, he wrote a response and I got it delivered to my place in Manly. And it was handwritten by this guy. There was like a template that he had drawn on each page and a story just saying, hey, you know, like, I'd love to connect, da-da-da-da-da. So I just wrote back. And 12 months later, he invited me to visit him. So maybe that was maybe the timeline of from the moment I told Dave that as soon as the company paid off to when I left, maybe it was about 12 months. But mm-hmm. he was actually, that, that was my first kind of thing from that moment moving forward. You know, I didn't know where to go in the world. All I knew is I wanted to go somewhere related to the list. He invited me to Oklahoma, to a place called McAllister, to his penitentiary. And I thought, well, that'll do. So I bought a ticket to LA and then LA to Oklahoma, got a rental car and drove for like two hours to McAllister. I think it was about two hours. And then visited J-Lock in death row. And it sounds so bizarre and outrageous and you know, almost unlikely, but I've got to tell you, it's the simplest thing I've ever done. I just applied myself. And I'm not here to be a, a motivational speaker. I'm not on stage now. I'm just telling you, like, it was easy. It was easy. And things are so easy when you are very clear about what's important to you. And that's the question that's, that's relative, right? What is important to you? But at these points, it was that, followed by what happened then? I mean, whatever it was, I just look at my map and go, that's what's happening next. And I would go and do it. So when you're doing these first, say, dozen or so, items on your list, were you thinking to yourself, this may potentially get picked up by the media. So let me record like what happens. No. And were you taking meticulous no. notes or? Not at all. This was completely just personal. I wasn't even recording half of it. It wasn't like in this day and age now where you have content creators and influencers. No, I was just doing it. With that said, and this kind of goes back to what I mentioned before, I wanted to raise money for a charity because I'd never done it before. So Mm -hmm. I chose Camp Quality, which is an Australian-based charity that they help with kids with cancer. It's more detailed than that. And I wish I could give a better explanation, but I I can't think of it offhand. And their PR team said, well, hey, why don't we put a press release out there? Because I guess, you know, as a business, which it is, they're wanting exposure. So they said, why don't we pitch this as a story? Guy with bucket list is raising money for kids with cancer. And of course... As soon as I did that, we got a response from Channel 7, like a a big network in Australia, to do their morning breakfast show. And I was on their breakfast show. Before I even left Australia, having only achieved maybe 10 things probably, including Mm -hmm. speed dating and what have you, I was talking about this goal. And what I noticed, a couple of things here, what I noticed is because I went on TV, I wanted to raise $10,000 for Camp Quality. I can't remember what the actual figure was that I got to at the end of that day, but because of the TV interview, we raised a lot of money for Camp Quality in one day, and I raised it after then to $100,000, which we went and did. So that was interesting, but no, there was never any plan with it. Was that the interview that Mark saw? No, no, no. That was years on. That was the very first interview before I left the country. I left. Okay. What I found, going back to your question, is that I, I never did any of it to be seen or to try and mm-hmm. build a business or some people might see that as me either not telling the truth or being incredibly stupid. Um, it's, <laughs> it's neither of those, but if I had to pick, it would be closer to the stupid one. I just did it purely for, for my stuff. I found that media liked to follow me wherever I went. I suddenly would end up in a newspaper because someone I would meet in that area would generally go, oh, I know someone. This would be a great story. 
So that's kind of how it started at first. But of course, some of it was documented. I found that I loved writing from backpacking earlier on in my life. And instead of sending emails, block emails to everyone on my address book, I created a little blogging site where I just put down stories. And when I visited J-Lock on death row, first thing I did, I wrote this long story about the whole experience and it helped me process and understand it. And friends would read it and they would share it with friends. And that was kind of what I was doing. I hitchhiked across America shortly-ish afterwards. And that was the first time I ever tried to video anything. I had a camera with me and I just videoed and I thought, well, this might be cool in between my writing about it. And it was awful footage. My intention was to be happy. And there are other people and their intention is fine too, was to go out there and film everything and create this site that immediately inspires so they can do this and that. It's absolutely fine. It's just different to my way of thinking, certainly back then. Just for the listener, some of the items included things like going on a game show, which you did, playing a song that you wrote on stage, being homeless for a week, delivering a baby, obviously getting married to a stranger, kissing a celebrity, stand-up comedy. So you started like writing down little comedy bits. You started, you know, you started doing all these little things that you could do initially. Was there a point where... You started getting coverage and you started to think to yourself proactively that, oh, this is something that the media could potentially be interested in. This could make things easier when I want to jump out the plane naked. Like if I could, yeah. were you calling the media and notifying them beforehand? No. As I said, the media would follow and it was always good and it got more people following me on Facebook. And what I would find is that the more people that followed me, the more people would offer to help me with my list. So I saw that my list was now being seen by many people. I've, of course, Mm. learned along the way through my experience that people are fantastic. We're here to connect with each other. And if I had an opportunity to help someone, I would. And the same goes for anyone else with me. And that's what was happening. So that was the benefit I saw. Number 100 was to write a book on my list. I wanted to write a kid's book about the boats and and everything in Sydney Harbour. So it was going to be a kid's book. But ultimately, I got reached out to by somebody who wanted to help. That, That person happened to work for Random House or Random House Penguin, as they are now. And they wanted me to write a book about my story. They had read the Death Row story on my blog and liked it so much that they asked me to put together memoirs of my journey. So that's kind of how it worked out. But everything's been pretty organic. There was a moment or two where someone would say to me, you should put out a press release about something you're doing. I think I did it on one or two occasions. I met this guy called Dave Cornthwaite, who's a professional adventurer. He also does speaking, you know, keynote speaking. But he was coming at it from a business point of view. Let me qualify that. He is a complete adventurous soul and he's great. He also has an entrepreneurial mind. And so he was doing what many people are doing now ahead of the time, which is fusing business and passion and adventure to help other people. That's what he was doing. So he was making documentary, mini documentaries, self-producing of him doing his adventures. His first one, by the way, was skateboarding the length of Australia, the width of Australia from Perth to Sydney and then beyond. Anyway, so he's kind of a known guy. So that was my first inkling of, oh, people can do this and actually try and generate money or something. That's not the direction I ended up taking anyway, but I saw it for the first time. So him and I decided to stand up paddle across Lake Geneva. We were the first people to do it, we think. It was on my list, number 85, go on an adventure. So that's what this was. And with that, I saw him send out press releases and he created a little mini documentary for us. And that was the first time I saw how it might work as a business. I still haven't gone down that route, but I started to see it. So, you know, ESPN approached me. They wanted to do a documentary. Discovery Channel approached me, wanted to do a documentary. I have a show. I have a 26-episode show here in the US, a reality show. 
that went on this platform called Go90, which was a Verizon product, which was going to be like a Netflix equivalent, got dissolved. I don't know how these things happen. Well, I mean, I do know, but on every occasion that I just got approached. People would say, hey, we heard about you. Would you like to do a thing? That's a funny story. My first talk I ever gave in LA, I was approached by a guy called Keith from Defy Media here in LA. And he said, we want to do a TV show on you. What would it be about? And I, at that point, had started helping other people. And I said, well, I think it should be about me helping people achieve their goals. And he said, okay. And then I just sort of forgot about it. I mean, this is just such a good example of like me. I forgot about it. I went home for a year. I came back to speak at the same event the year after. Keith was there. And he said, where'd you go? And I said, I just went home to Australia. And he said, we want to make a show. And I said, oh, okay. So we made a show. All that to say that, yeah, there was never an intention or a strategy around the the business side of it. How were you making money? How were you paying your bills prior to all of that? So I think I left with $8,000 or $9,000, something like that. Mm -hmm. I whittled that down really quickly. Then I started using my credit card aggressively. And without, again, no financial knowledge or, you know, there's no education around finances. So I did that. My mum, she would pay the interest on my credit card. She wouldn't pay off debt, but she'd pay the interest. So it, which was so good of her, I eventually paid it back. But at the time, it just meant that I wasn't going into any more debt. And I remember thinking, well, what's a credit card for? And my answer was, well, it's for doing things you want to do. And I wanted to do all these things. So I was very happy using it. So I was flying to wherever without thinking or care. What happened was that I got offered to write a book. And so the money I got as an advance for that covered all that debt. I was able to pay my mum back and thank her because she's the greatest human on the planet. And then a little bit more. So I started doing other things on my list. And then I got back to Australia and my book, which was now in circulation in Australia, and then it actually went into China. <laughs> so I forgot that it was China. China and Taiwan, I was generating a little bit of money, a little bit, but enough. But so many people were now reading it that I got asked to do a talk at one point. You know, a company in Australia had said, would you do a talk for us? I'd like my staff to hear your story. And I thought, that's interesting. So I did that. I'd actually done one more talk at that point earlier on. I can talk about that too. But anyway, I got paid for this talk. I got paid 500 bucks. And I thought, you are kidding me. That is phenomenal. (laughs) So... I did that and they liked it so much. They said, we've actually got something like 30 branches or more around Australia. We'd like you to talk to all of them. And I was like, you're kidding. What? You're, no way. <laughs> so, I, so that's sort of how it funded itself. The, the other point, this is just a funny one and I'm jumping around so much here. So I apologize to you and anyone who's listening. But number 36 on my list was walk across a country. Now, I chose France. So I was halfway across France with a guy called Maddie who I'd met working in a bar in Geneva where I was living to try and learn French, number 42 on my list. And we were halfway across and I had $40 to my name, $40. But by the way, I'd been part of another documentary at this point, which my plan was to get across France in 14 days and they were going to fly me to England for the premiere of this documentary. So just to give a bit of a time frame. So halfway across France, I had $40 Australian dollars to my name and I didn't care. And I thought, well, I'll be fine. And then I checked, we were in this tiny, tiny town, a village in France. And we walked through and I checked my emails and Dave said, call me. Dave's my tank, my business partner, if you will, for the inflatable movie screen business in Sydney after Thorpey tried to screw us over. (laughs) And he said, call me, someone wants to buy the business. So I called him and I kind of had forgotten. I just didn't think anyone would want the business. And it turned out someone wanted to buy it. I think it was for $119,000. 
And I was like, you are, no way, really? So we split it 60-40. Dave argued that because he had been staying and working on the job, he should get 60 He does more, right. And I said, well, he's my best mate. So I was like, yeah, but I worked on it for like two and a half years without you. Like, I don't like confrontation, so we, we stayed at 60-40. For the record, about 12 months ago, me and Dave were catching up, and he said, I think you were right about that, by the way. Anyway, after paying capital gains taxes or whatever the other taxes were, I got my 40% of that amount ended up being something like $12,000 or something. It was, it was ridiculous. I, I, I'm really bad with figures, but it was nothing. But whatever it was, I was like, this is amazing because I only had $40 at the beginning of the day. So it all just worked out in some bumbling kind of way. But I will say, and, you know, I'll save this for later on if it pops up, there is something to be said for pursuing something that you're passionate about because things pop up, you seek out opportunities that you don't see before and things will show up. Like, the, you know, the, the world conspires to help you out. And, you know, I, it's not really my, my world, the way I speak in interviews or anything like that in that sort of spiritually led way. I feel that there's something looking after us all if we're able to connect with something, you know, but I do believe there's something going on there. Okay, that was Sebastian Terry from episode 91. Next, we are going to hear from Agapi Stasinopoulos, who has written several best-selling books on various topics like Greek gods, meditation, mindfulness, and most recently, Agapi has written about the power of prayer. And she was gracious enough to come on to the podcast back in episode 89 to share her superhero origin story. And in this clip, Agapi talks about how she aspired to become an actress when she was younger. And while it felt like that was her calling at the time, it didn't quite manifest as she had hoped. But... One of her most memorable performances took place on a city bus, and that experience taught her something very important. It taught her about callings and why we don't need to wait for other people to validate our calling in whatever ways that we imagine it was supposed to happen. All right, let's listen in on that conversation. My God, I had so many difficulties in my life. It's not like I had my experience at 23 and I live happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, and that's, you write about that. Every difficulty you have leads to some greater awakening yes, and, and I, some new step along your path. I had projects that I worked for years that fell through. I had relationships that I thought, oh, he's the one. And he was not the one at all. <laughs> he, just, he went out and found another one. <laughs> I had heartbreaks. I had times where I was broke. And I had times where I didn't know what to do with myself. I knew spirit and I knew the light, but I didn't know how to translate it. So I had to trust that in my forming, in my as a way of creating my life and myself, that I was guided. But that doesn't mean that I didn't go through the ebbs and valleys of life. And that's the reason why I have the confidence and the authority to come up and talk about it with, with such passion, is because I know it. I have faced a lot of these human difficulties. And until we die, I think we're always facing something. So back to your question of, how do we find the confidence to pray when we, we feel awkward, we feel silly, we feel self-conscious? It's you just 
put one foot in front of the other. You put one word in front of the other. Your intention behind is you start to assume it and it will meet you halfway. Your willingness to go there. You know, there's, there's nothing more wonderful than to pray for someone and to feel that the Spirit used you to lift mm. them. Right, Light? It reminds me of this story that happened to you where you ended up giving the monologue on the bus and that woman, you know, you were complaining and you weren't getting the acting jobs. And the woman said, well, you don't have to get a job to act. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Can you you share that story? I think it's such a wonderful story. Oh, my God. It changed my life. I was auditioning in New York City for a six-hour adaptation of Greek plays at Williamstown. And I went with Joan of Arc. I did the Joan of Arc monologue. And by that time, I already had my spiritual experiences, you know, so I was already mm-hmm. in the spiritual path. So, and I had a lot of high expectations, you know, like, okay, it's a Greek play. It's a Greek director. I'm a Greek girl. I'm talented. I'm very talented. I will get beautiful. <laughs> I'm beautiful. I'm talented. I speak Greek. I speak English. Well, I auditioned and the guy called me three days later and he said, he spoke with a thicker accent than me. You know, Agapi, you know, you are so talented, my dear girl, but I don't know how to cast you because you have so much personality that if I cast you as an extra, you'll stand out in the chorus, you know, not extra, in the chorus. If I cast you with big parts, Electra, Clatemnestra, Digoni, you don't have a big enough name. I said, no, I do. It's Agapi Stasinopoulos. It's very big. <laughs> and he said, well, no, no, I mean Sigourney Weaver, Susan Sarandon, you know, I need the names for the theater. So that was that. And I was despondent. I was like, well, this, if I can even get a chorus part in a seven-hour adaptation of the Greek plays. And I took the bus to go to my singing lesson, which I had religiously every week. I was so depressed and so down. Oh, my God, like the difficulties as a young girl that I went through with the disappointments constantly with the acting thing. And I was sitting next to a woman and, you know, being Greek, I talked to everybody. Somebody sitting next to me to the bus, of course, I'll say, hi, how are you? And this beautiful woman I said, well, I'm very depressed. I didn't get the part. I was, you know, I'm an actress. She said, oh, she said, I'm an actress. I was an actress. She said, I'm a nurse. I have a uh, little boy. I'm a single mom, so I had to earn a living. And she said, what did you audition with? And I said, I did, I did Joan of Arc. I said, oh, my God, was that the Bernard Shaw? And I said, yes. And she said, I know that monologue. I said, it's the one that goes, you promised me my life, that you lied. And I said, you want me to do it for you? And I start to recite this monologue, which is so powerful because she's in front of her accusers. And she says to them, I could live without water and bread, but to shut me from the light of the day, to throw me in the dungeon so I can no longer hear the larks in the trees and see the soldiers passing by and to no longer be able to smell the flowers and the air. That is worse than the furnace in the Bible that was heated seven times. So burn me, burn me at the stake and God will be with me and God will comfort me because the hatred in yours 
will be supported by the comfort of God and the people who love me. And she goes on and on and she says, so God be with me. And so I'm screaming this monologue in the bus and the whole bus wakes up and she kind of (laughs) applauded me and she holds my hand and she says, my dear girl, you don't have to wait for anyone to hire you. You are so talented. Why don't you go do your own thing? And I left the bus and I felt ah, so elated as if something had hit me, like like the light had hit me and said, get off your wanting this acting so much. It's not for you. Go do your own thing. And of course, I didn't know what my own thing was going to be. So I reflected on it and thought, and I think a few weeks later, I started to think I'm going to do a one-woman show with all the Greek goddesses, seven of them, you know, the Greek goddesses from Olympus. And I'm going to do the monologues that I love for each goddess. So Bernard Shaw of this Joan of Arc would be Artemis and, and uh, Jocasta will be Demeter. And a character from Bernard Shaw Colorinthia is going to be Aphrodite and on and on. And it was a dream. I mean, I put this show together and I launched it and it was... It was agape emerging with my light and my spirit, but now combining my talent into the world. That's how my life kind of unfolded, you know, finding the courage to say, I'll do my own thing. Nobody's hiring me. I will hire me. Well, it's almost like you embodied that. You wrote about this in your book, the chariots of fire line. You know, oh, when the guy says, it. when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And, and yes. it's almost like you stumbled upon that, that living prayer. It's a living prayer, right? Because yes, you thought life. acting was your purpose. And, and for all we know, for that part of your life, for that season, that was your purpose. But it wasn't about the outcome. It wasn't about getting the film role. It wasn't about getting the audition. It was about just the art of acting itself. Like God exactly. is speaking through exactly. your actions. Exactly. Oh, my God. That is so true that you remember that movie, you know, and uh, I don't remember. Well, I it. didn't remember it. I just read it in your book. And I was like, I want to go watch this movie again because I saw it when I was a kid and I don't recall that profound yes. moment. But it was um, it, yes. it, it, it really struck me. Let me just share it with our listeners. There is a movie called The Charge of Fire that Vangelis, the Greek composer, actually wrote the music. And it's a true story, by the way. It's about two Olympic athletes in England. And one is a Christian and the other one is a Jewish one. And they're competing in the same race. And the Christian one is a missionary. And they go with his sister all around and they, of course, support people to become Christians. And his love is running. And so he's running the race. And his sister has a conversation with him, and I think his name is Lytle, Little. you got to give up that hobby of yours of running and concentrate on what God is calling you for, which is being a missionary. Mm. And he turns to her and says, but when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that is the most beautiful line to me that I've really heard from expressed how the spirit moves with us when we do something that we really love. So I wrote this whole chapter of during the pandemic, because I wasn't speaking and I wasn't interacting with people out there 
I stopped feeling his pleasure. I got really sad and very upset. And in writing this book, the spirit allowed me to get deeper into myself to feel his pleasure while I was writing, while Mm -hmm. I was speaking the words. And spirit comforted me in my bereftness of what was happening. Now you tell me, when do you feel his pleasure or her pleasure? I read this anecdote, you probably heard it before, where an astronaut goes into space and then comes back and he tells everyone he had a face-to-face with God. And they go, what was he like? And he goes, well, first of all, she's a black woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love it. That was Agapi Stasinopoulos from episode 89. Next, we're going to go to one of my most anticipated interviews from this past year, which was with former inmate turned author Shaka Singor, who was convicted of murder and he spent 19 years in total in prison. And seven of those years, he was in solitary confinement. And that's where he ended up writing his first book, which is called Writing My Wrongs. It was published shortly after he was released and then very serendipitously found its way to Oprah. And then his career as a writer skyrocketed from there and he became a New York Times bestselling author. And I love his story because it reminds us that we don't need the perfect setting and the perfect resources and the perfect equipment or even the perfect time to do what's in our heart. All we need is the right amount of inspiration to spark our leap into action. And in this clip, which is taken from episode number 87, Shaka shares more about his experience of finding that inspiration in solitary confinement while in prison and what happened from there. Let's listen in. Now we're in the period of your life where you're writing more or less prolifically in the solitary confinement. What's a day in the life like in terms of your writing and whatever else is going on in that in that six by nine foot cell? I'm happy you asked that. When I think about where I was at the time that I was writing, you know, there's a few things that comes up. You know, there's obviously the pain of the experience And solitary confinement is something that I will forever advocate to have ended. I think it's the most barbaric and inhumane treatment that we Mm -hmm. can inflict on people consciously and with our tax dollars. And, you know, I think to lock a person in a cell or a cage for years at a time is cruel and unusual punishment. And the environment that I was in, the thing that struck me the most about it was the high level of mental health challenges that the men around me were faced with and the way that that showed up, you know, whether it was men who were cutting themselves so that they can get taken to a hospital and receive some type of care and comfort from somebody who treated them with humanity, or whether it was just the personal attacks on each other from slinging feces on each other to sleep deprivation by banging on the toilets in their cells. It was a very chaotic environment. Every day it was super noisy. And, you know, there was always the officers coming to extract people from their cells. And, you know, they come as 10 officers fully adorned in what looks like hockey apparel. And they would come and extract people and take them to whether the suicide watch cell or other cells, which meant they spray pepper spray. And that just goes through the whole unit. 
So there was days where you would just, you know, I would be sitting on my bunk and all of a sudden I'm coughing and whatever because they're spraying pepper spray without consideration for everybody else around them. And it was chaos. And at one point, I started to question whether I was actually losing it because I wasn't reactive to so many of the things that other people were reactive to. And I was like, well, maybe I'm the one who's losing it and they're and they've got it all together. And that's the psychological challenge of being in an environment where it's so chaotic and nothing is normal and there's no idea of when you're going to get out, you know, kind of similar to what we're dealing with with the pandemic in the sense that uncertainty is always looming above you. And so for me, writing in that environment required a lot of ingenuity. You know, I had to write to what's the optimum time. And typically it was once the lights were out, you know, in the cell Mm -hmm. block, then things would kind of quiet down. And so I would stand by the window. It's a little small window at the back of my cell and a little bit of light that filtered in, I would write from that, you know, and then sometimes I would lay on the floor and write from the little bit of light that leaked up under the cell door. So I was always just finding different ways to do it. And then I created just kind of a consistent cadence of like what I want my experience to be like. This is once I started realizing that we may not be able to control our circumstances, but I believe we can always control our reaction to them. And so I began to set my cell up as if I was at university. You know, I would study, you know, philosophy in the morning. You know, I would go from philosophy to world history, from world history to African history, from African history to Eastern philosophy. And then I would get into literature and, and then I would make time to just read. And then after I got done with that, then that's when I would write. So I just made sure that I consistently kept my mind moving forward. You know, I think people lose hope when they can't take that next step in their mind. And so those things allowed me to just every day to add some type of value to my life and to my experience and really just to keep me moving forward. What about more practical considerations such as exercise, food, water? Was that adequate when you were in there? Well, the the exercise part, that's up to you, you know. And so I, I definitely, you know, exercise every day. I would take my mattress and roll it up. And then I would tie a sheet around the mattress and then I would loop another sheet through the mattress and then I would curl the mattress. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I would do my curls. I would do like shoulder presses and then, I, you know, I would just do push ups and other calisthenics. And so that was part of that baked in routine, you know, just to keep my body moving forward. Meditation, that was so important to me is like the ability to process my mind in a way that emptied out all those negative self-defeating thoughts you know, journaling, that was very practical. You know, practice for me is like to really get things out of my mind. In regards to food, we were solely reliant on whatever they were serving. That was oftentimes not the best. The portions are very skimpy. You can't buy solitary, I mean, commissary out of the store when you're in solitary. And so the only edible thing you can buy are cough drops. Um, so <laughs> cough drops became like candy as well as currency. But that was it. And you can't save, you can't hoard food because if they catch you with any food that you saved, basically they they would put you on a food restriction. And then you would get a big lump of what's called food loaf, which is all the food mashed up and baked into this brick. And so, you know, to avoid that, you have to eat whatever you can before you turn your tray in. So under all those conditions, you wrote your first book within 30 days. 
Did you know yeah. it was good or how did you get any validation? You pass it around, let the other guys read it. How does it work? I remember setting very intentional parameters for finishing the book because when I was journaling, I realized that I had never completed anything. I had, you know, only thing I had completed was a GED. And so I was like, you know, I want to challenge myself. And so I challenged myself to write this book in 30 days and I got it done. And I remember thinking to myself, well, a, a book isn't a book until somebody reads it. And so I asked the guys on the cell block, I'm like, yo, anybody want to read this book, you know? And a few guys was like, no, we don't read that, blah, blah, blah. You ain't, you know, this ain't Oprah's book. Most book. of these guys can't even really read. They're operating on a third grade reading level, right? Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a third grade reading level. But there's surprisingly, you know, some guys who figure out, you know, how to how to get through books that resonate with them. You know, that's why I think mm-hmm. Donald Owens was so important in Iceberg Slim. I think you put more effort into something when you can see yourself in it. And one guy, he was like, yeah, send it over to me. And I remember... Like I had to send it over on a fish line. So we would make these lines that we would attach stuff and slide it up under the door so that the other person could pull it in. And so, you know, I remember sending it under the door and thinking to myself, this is my only copy as the last part of it stood on the door. And if you don't give it back, there's nothing I could do because we're in solitary. But I remember him getting it and I didn't hear from him for a couple of hours. So I started getting really nervous. I'm like, oh, man, he going he gonna to keep the book. Then that's going to turn into a whole conflict when we get back to the yard. You got to turn back into the old Shaka. Got to go back to the, you know, thugging it out on the yard and, you know, trying to avoid that at all costs. But I remember him coming back to the cell door. And he was like, yo, man, this is one of the best books I ever read. Wow. And I did like a little dance, like in my cell. I was like, yo, I did it, blah, blah. And then I had this moment of clarity. I was like, well, he's in solitary confinement. So <laughs> Probably super bored. His I'm judgment like, is a little bit skewed. I'm like, I could have sent him a, a recipe over there. He's like, man, it's the best chicken noodle soup ever. And so I was like, you know, I got to get my work out. And I eventually started sending work out to one of my brothers. Uh, he's, he's my stepbrother, but we don't identify the step part. You know, he's just my older brother. We call him kid, but his name is Will Red. And I remember sending my, my older brother the book out. And initially, I sent him some short stories first. And I remember him writing me. And he hadn't wrote me much, you know, in prison. You know, my, my older brother, he was like the one brother who had never had a brush with the system, never got caught up in the streets. He played ball for high school. He went to college. You know, he was doing all the right things, you know. And, and to this day, he's just an you know, incredible example for me as a father, as a husband. And all the things that he does really, you know, he inspires me. But I remember getting a letter from him and he was like, man, you know, he's like, I read all this stuff, you know, when I was in college and you know, I read all these different things people wrote. And he was like, you write better than most people I went to school with. And I was like, wow, you know, like that, that validation meant something, you know, it was like, this is something, you know, I could take serious. And so I continued writing. And then I started, you know, once I got out of solitary, I started sharing the books in the cell block and just that grapevine of like, Guys coming like, yo, man, when can I get the book next? I heard so much about it. When guys start to talk about it, you know, that you have no connection to, they don't know nothing about you. That's when I was like, okay, I'm on to something. As you're writing, were you recognizing any patterns? Like if I tell more stories, if I'm like completely raw and honest, that's the stuff that connects with people the most. Or were you just kind of like just stream of consciousness and just writing whatever was coming to you? I think a lot of it was, you know, as I talked about early, being really influenced by hip hop. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think about some of the artists that I've grown up loving and the ones that always resonated with me was people who rap very cinematically. The great storytellers, you know, the cool G rap, you know, the Nas's and, and, and people who are very can bring you into their world. And that really, from a, a storytelling structure, the way that I've approached it is that I want people to feel like they're a part of this world, that they're having the experience of the characters, that they can smell the environment, they can taste the environment. You know, they can be grossed out. They can fall in love. They can be angry. They can be, you know, they can laugh, like, you know, all the things. So I think that instinct really came from reading a lot and listening to a lot of hip hop. And what I started finding consistently in the reactions to my work is people would say, I felt like I was there. I felt like I was part of the experience. And so that became kind of a thing where I was very intentional about setting the scene and really setting up those connecting points and, you know, the metaphors and the similes that really align with that more cinematic storytelling. At what point were you aware that you were going to get out? And when you found out and now you're writing these books and you're getting this response, what was your plan in your head, right? Before you actually walked out of those those gates, what were you thinking was going to happen with all of this? I was excited. When I wrote the first couple of books, and, you know, and for years, they were just like tight, you know, in folders. I would carry them from, you know, safeguarding with, you know, with my everything. And, you know, during this time, there was this uptick in like literature that was coming from communities, you know, like real communities, like, you know, Terry Woods, you know, True to the Game, you know, uh, Sister Soldier, The Coldest Winter Ever, you know, Quan, you know, Animal, like all these great literary like to me they're literary giants right you know they they may not rise to what people typically frame as literary but I think if you can communicate a reality from an environment that makes people feel something that makes people feel connected that that makes people feel like they can see themselves in those stories like that's greatness to me you know and that's what they embody and so I saw the way that they were hustling you know they were hustling books and you know I also come from that era where DJs would hustle the tapes in the neighborhood. You know, I used to DJ and we would sell a mixtape for $2, you know, Too Short hustling, you know, his, his album out of the trunk and Masterpiece. So I knew those stories because I was reading Vibe Magazine and Source and, you know, keeping my ear to the street. So I knew that I could get out and sell books. I just had to get out. <laughs> that was the big part of it was getting out. And that was something I didn't know. You know, I didn't know if I was ever getting out of prison because that's what they told me, like you would die in here. And so the first step was getting myself out of solitary. And you did that with a freaking letter. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a letter to the warden, you know, and it it was a mixture of writing a letter and reading all these philosophical books. You know, I I challenged (laughs) them on a philosophical idea of what the truth is. And -hmm. basically what I did is I wrote the warden a letter and I said, you know, and I prefaced it with what you're going to read is my truth. and if you follow the pattern of what my experience is, they line up with exactly what I said. When I came to prison, I said I wasn't following the rules. And I've been pretty consistent with that, which means that you can agree or disagree with me not following the rules. But what you have to agree with is that I told the truth. And if you believe that the truth is the most important thing, then everything that I'm about to tell you in this letter moving forward, I would hope that you acknowledge that as truth as well. 
And that's when I told him, if you give me an opportunity to get out, I'm going to pursue this writing thing. I'm going to take it serious. I'm going to stop doing the things I was doing on the yard to get in trouble. And I'm going to focus on becoming the best writer that I can be. And it was the first and only time that a warden has ever directly wrote me back. And he said he was so moved by the letter and he believed my truth that he's going to advocate for me to get released from solitary. And he ended up doing that. And so it still took about two years because he had to go to his higher ups. But once I got out, you know, I started typing those books up. I had a little brother's word processor. It was a brother ML 500. I had that little word processor. You can only see like half of a sentence on that little screen. And I would just type, type, type nonstop, you know, for days on end, transferring those books to type, you know, manuscripts. And so I did that. And that's what I shared in the cell blocks, those type manuscripts, you know. And meanwhile, I started putting a business plan together. I started kind of walking through what I wanted to happen with my writing. You know, I was very intentional about where I wanted to land at and what I wanted it to become when I got out. You know, I wrote in every genre you can think of. I started with fiction. At one point, I wrote some erotica, which turned into a whole different thing because, you know, it was a mixture of me coming from being a hustler to evolving into like a real writer. And so mm-hmm. it was like, okay, I can write and I know I can move products. So I'm going to get out and I'm going to hustle these books. And so, you know, I ended up meeting Sekou's mom. Sekou is my younger son who I write about in the book, but I met his mom while I was incarcerated, you know, and we started exchanging correspondence and she was like, you know, what is your plan for life? And I was like, I'm happy you asked. Here's what I want to do. And I sent her a whole business plan, a whole breakdown of how I was going to disrupt the literary scene, how I was going to approach it, the places I was going to go. My goal was to get out, get a job, save that money, buy some books, take those books, hustle them everywhere I could, buy more books, hustle them, rinse and repeat. And she was like, wow, like, she's like, I'm with it. Like, let me help you, you know? And so we ended up joining forces and I actually published my first book from prison in 2008, Mm. published Crack Volume 1. And as soon as I published the book, I got sued by the Department of Corrections for the cost of my incarceration. But I didn't let that deter me, you know. And, you know, I went up for parole that same year, got denied, went back up the following year, got denied. And I decided I wasn't going back to the parole board at that point. And I was just going to do the time. And the reason I had thought about that was it was hard watching my dad. And at the time, who was my girlfriend, it was hard watching them suffer. And I wanted to relieve them of getting their hopes up high, only to have them dashed by my denial of prison, you know, parole release. And so fortunately, Sekou's mom came to visit me the same day. And I sat in that visiting room and I was in tears. You know, it was heartbreaking watching her come through security and get patted down and have to take her shoes off and have to open her mouth and have to be touched and all the things. And I was like, I didn't want her to suffer through that anymore. And so when she walked in, I was like, I got to break up with this woman. And so, you know, as soon as she sat down, you know, I go into this whole spiel about we have to break up and, you know, I broke down in tears and, you know, she just let me cry and get it out. And then she was like, you're absolutely going to your next parole board here. And like, you know, you can get it together and, and get back up in there, but we didn't come this far to give up, you know? 
And so, you know, I ended up going back and I got paroled on that third try, you know, and as they said, the third time was a charm. And so the first thing I did when I got out of prison, they took me from the prison to the parole office. I had to check in with my parole office. And Ebony, who was Sekou's mom, she pulls up, uh, her and my oldest son, Jay. And there was a brother who was getting out. His name is Prince Montgomery. He was getting out the same day we had met on like the last 60 days of my sentence. And he's like, man, I'm about one of your books when I get out. And I thought he was talking about once he got home and kind of like got himself together. But, you know, he had money in his account and they, you know, they gave him that. And, you know, he was like, yo, did your girl bring them books? And she was like, yeah, I got them in the trunk. You know, I'm like, yo, pop that trunk, you know. And I remember him giving me the books were only $15. He gave me $20. I didn't have no change. I didn't have no money on me. And he was like, man, keep that extra five, man. I'm happy to support you, you know. So every mm. year we celebrate our freedom anniversary, but we also celebrate the moment of my first actual hand-to-hand book sale. And I've been selling books ever since. You talked about selling books to put gas in your Honda Accord and you were, you were going around mentoring kids and all of that. I imagine you never dreamed in a million years that you'd be interviewed by Oprah and all of this, you know, from from one of your books at that time, but talk about what those next breadcrumbs were along that path. Like I know there was a college or something that was interested in one of your books. Yeah. So actually I did think that I would be interviewed by Oprah, (laughs) Okay, Um, but I'm going to tell you why I believe in the laws of attraction. I believe that we can manifest into our lives, the things that we desire. And I was super intentional about what I wanted to happen with my work. So I wrote it down. I was like, you know, if I'm going to be a real writer, Oprah has to read one of my books. And for me at that time, that's the validation that I needed to confirm this was a life for me as a writer. I was like, I want to be a New York Times bestseller. I wrote that down. You know, so I was very intentional about writing down exactly what I wanted to happen. And, you know, of course, it didn't happen in the way that I imagined. I imagine I'm just going to send her a crack volume one. You know, Oprah's going to read that and be like, Yo, it's really going down in the hood. You know, I need to be in tune with that. But it didn't work out like that. But what did happen is there was a professor who was at SUNY State University of New York, Binghamton. And she had been introduced to me by a young lady who used to edit their paper, who I had became pen pals with while I was in solitary. And she got my first book and she assigned that book to her class. And then they ended up inviting me to come speak. So my first professional speaking gig was at, you know, she had moved from that college to a college in Wisconsin, Platteville. And uh, that was my first gig. So that was kind of like the beginning of like, this is really starting to happen. Like I'm, my book is, you know, in a college, officially part of college curriculum. And so that was the first kind of thing of like, hey, this thing can happen, you know. And so I started doing these talks. But I was also doing work in the community and I was using literature as a means to mentor uh, kids at the school called Cody High School on the west side of Detroit. And then there was another one in, in a suburb called Tri-County in a suburb of Detroit called Southfield. And I was using literature and I ended up winning this award called Black Male Engagement Leadership Award. And that allowed me to write another book called Living Peace. And, that was, and it was kind of like a workbook that I used in my mentoring program. And that experience really opened up the world to me. So after I won that award, 
the organization, they would invite me to these gatherings. And I ended up going to one of those gatherings, and that's where I met the director of MIT Media Lab, Joy Ito. And Joy, you know, invited me to learn about the Media Lab. So I went from nearly two decades in prison to being in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at MIT Media Lab with all these crazy robotics and 3D printing. And and I talk about it in my TED Talk. When I tell people, it was like Fred Flintstone walking into an episode of The Jetsons. Like, that is no exaggeration. Like, I didn't know anything about technology. The internet hadn't been created before I went to prison. There was no smartphones. There were no iPads. None of the things that we, you know, now have at our disposal. So when I walked to the media lab, I was just like, I mean, there was one thing that stuck out to me out the gate. There was a car that basically folded up the wheels in parallel park. And I was like, yo, this is crazy, right? But it sparked my imagination, you know, and and from there, I just was like, anything is possible, you know? And so I went on to do TED and be interviewed by Oprah, which was one of the most groundbreaking experiences of my life. That was like five years after I'm out. That was Shaka Senghor from episode 87. Make sure you listen to that entire episode. It is amazing. And in our next clip, which is from episode number 85, I'm in conversation with Ken Nwadike Jr., who grew up in a homeless shelter in Southern California. And Ken went on to become a track star who created a race called the Hollywood Half Marathon. And then later... He became known as the free hugs guy after trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, failing twice, but still deciding to show up with a free hug sign on the sidelines. And little did he know that act of kindness would launch him into a career as a speaker and advocate for bridging gaps between sides in conflict zones. Ken's is a fascinating backstory, and I highly recommend checking out the entire episode. But let's go straight to the part where Ken is volunteering at the same homeless shelter where he used to live. And he's proposing to the kids who currently live in that homeless shelter that they put together this marathon, this Hollywood half marathon, even though they had nowhere close to the one million dollars that it would take to pull it off. When you were first going back to volunteer, what was your mental state like? Because you experienced all this, you know, loss and trauma and all of that. Were were you as positive then as you are now? Absolutely. Yeah, I I definitely went into it with the intention of spreading that positivity to the kids, you know, because you have to be that way to be an athlete. You have to be very goal oriented and motivated. And so I think track did that for me. I went from being this shy kid that was like struggling to even speak out to my own bullies to being captain of that track team. And so once you get handed that leadership responsibility of like leading a team to a championship, you know, because track is an individual sport, but cross country is a team sport. And so as captain of the cross country team and track team, it's like, no, man, we, we have to win this championship. And so it's almost like being Captain of a cross country team, you're that quarterback. You're the quarterback of the team. And so people are leaning on you for leadership, not even realizing that just a year prior or months prior, you were walking around with your head down. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to tell everyone else 
keep your head up, keep your knees up when you're running and we're going to win this thing. And so I just kind of would take that same motivation and try and inspire the young people that same way. So when I walk into the shelter and there's a kid that I'm having a conversation with and the entire time during the conversation, they won't look me in the face. I'm like, yo, I used to be the same way. And I could tell you like that lack of confidence that you have to look a person in the face, it's going to make it tough for you to get a job. It's going to make it tough for you to get a date. Like I remember I used to go on dates and like I would look everywhere, but at the girl's face, I'm looking over here. I'm looking down the table. I'm looking everywhere. And I remember there was a time that there was a girl, she was like, right here, Ken, can you just look me in the eyes for just one moment? And when I couldn't, like I realized, man, I have some serious things that I need to work on. And so these were all of the little things that when I went back to volunteer as a peer mentor in the shelter, almost all the little boys are that way. They feel so insecure that like you go to shake their hand and it's like this weak little handshake as they're looking down, they won't even look at you. And, and so I wanted to try and figure out, well, how do you take that captain of the team mentality and use that to inspire these young men and women that were living in the shelters and stand tall or let's fill out that job application. Why don't you go back to school rather than just you come out of the shelter and you go hang out on the block. And so those things became very important to me. And that led to a conversation about goals and big goals, which then led to this event. So talk about yes. that. Yeah. Yes. So I, when I, when I understood that you can't just tell them, right. You can't just tell kids who are living in a shelter or they've mm -hmm. been abused. You can't just tell them, Hey, pick yourself up. Everything's going to be all right. They're like, yeah, what does that look like? And so I knew for me just kind of taking running to that next level. I was like, you know what, why don't we create an event then let's create an event. We'll, shut down Hollywood Boulevard, which was ridiculous now when I even think about it, <laughs> like to go straight to Hollywood Boulevard. Like, why would you assume that you're going to be able to shut down Hollywood Boulevard? But, you know, we did. We called up LAPD and, and I said, what would it cost for us to shut down Hollywood Boulevard? And the cop laughed. <laughs> He's like, they don't shut down Hollywood Boulevard for a race or for kids in a shelter as a, as a charity run. That's, they shut that down for like the Academy Awards when they're shooting a scene out of Transformers or something. They're not going to do that for some kids at the Gramercy Place homeless shelter. And I was like, oh man, well, and we were on speakerphone. And so these kids, they heard that. And, you know, they, of course, they're going to be frustrated. They felt let down as I'm hyping up. Yeah, we're going to shut down Hollywood Boulevard. We're going to get 10,000 people to come out and run this race. We're going to raise all this money. We're going to put a basketball court out on, on the yard. And we're going to do all these things with the money. And then, boom, one phone call. No, you're not. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, well can't give up hope that easy, you know? And so that's what led to me reaching out to the media and sharing, look, here's where I came from. Here's what I'm trying to do. And here's why it's important. And they came down to the shelter and did a whole profile on me, like a whole story. And then they interviewed some of the kids and that led to so many people seeing that news clip out in LA and they started registering for this at the at that time, this imaginary race. The race wasn't even we didn't have permits or anything yet at that point. But I was believing by faith that if I get enough people to register for this race, 
you're going to have to shut down the boulevard because we've got the money now and we've got the participants. It's one thing to just blow it off if you're like, oh, yeah, a handful of kids at a shelter who want to run this half marathon on their own. We're not shutting down the boulevard for that. But I'm like, I've got 10,000 people and a million dollars. You're going to pay attention to me now. What's interesting is you had already sort of done a dry run of your story, like that essay allowed you to really hone your pitch of what was important from yeah. your story. So I'm sure you probably used some of that or borrowed some of that, or maybe you were used to now telling your story. So when you finally reached out to the media, you didn't have to like try to guess what was appealing about your, you already knew what was appealing about your story. So you kind of knew how to play that angle. I never even thought about it like that, but you're totally right. You know, from, from having to, and I'm so thankful to Miss Tuck, my counselor in, in high school and another teacher, Miss Warmath, who like everyone hated this teacher, but I thought she was super sweet. They mm. all combined because they were aware of what I was going through, but they knew of my insecurities. It was almost like they would interview me to pull these things out. And they're like, put that in the essay, Ken, put that in the essay. And that's mm. what structured this thing. And so you're right. It's almost like very early on, it was already preparing me for what the future was going to hold to be able to share that story in such an impactful way that it led people in Los Angeles, celebrities in Los Angeles, and even LAPD to say, let's shut down the boulevard for them. And we pulled it off 13 miles of Hollywood Boulevard. And we already know how congested traffic is there. And we didn't just shut down roads. We shut down freeway on and off ramps. <laughs> like That's just insane to have to divert traffic like that for this race that we created. You raised a million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't even know you were going to have a race. Yep. Where was this money sitting in your checking yeah. account? <laughs> so um, there's, there's an online portal called active.com back then. It's a race registration site for charities. Mm -hmm. And so I built a website called the Hollywood Half Marathon. Like I was surprised that that domain was even available. I was like, how come no one's ever thought of this before? <laughs> so I registered a hollywoodhalfmarathon.com and I built the website. I pointed registrations to this website called active.com active.com. And so active.com, just to make sure that people aren't trying to scam people, they'll take all of the race registrations and then they'll pay you little bits of what you raised along the way to cover some of your operational expenses. And then after uh, the race takes place, then they release the rest of your funds. So yeah, I was like, I didn't even know that I was going to have the race yet. But I can check in my active.com account and as well as the deposits that I was already receiving. I was like, we've got a million bucks. Like, I remember I used to call my friends back then. And I was like, you guys realize I could buy a Lamborghini right now. I won't, <laughs> but I could buy a Lamborghini right now. There's a million dollars that I have access to, but we've got to pull off this race. What were you doing for money at the time? Did you have a job? I was living out in San Francisco running track with the Nike farm team, which was like mm -hmm. a, an Olympic development program. And while I was there, I had started a party bus company. And the reason mm -hmm. why I did that was there were like, it was one of the first news stories that I read when I got there, it was about how many kids were passing away, driving drunk on, I believe it was the 101 freeway coming from San Francisco back up to Stanford University. So my Nike development team, we were training 
on Stanford University's campus. And so they were talking about all of these university students who had recently lost their lives driving drunk. And I remember back then thinking, all these brilliant minds at Stanford and Berkeley and all these schools, you guys can't figure out a solution to this problem? I was like, the easiest thing is to create party transportation from all of the colleges, right? So this is back in 05, before a party bus ever even existed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I call up a charter bus company and have this charter bus meet at the Stanford University parking lot? And then I would just charge people admissions to board the bus. And then I would negotiate a contract with the clubs down in San Francisco so that people can hop to these clubs. This is pre any party bus company that ever existed. Yeah, pre Uber, all that. Yeah. Any of those things. Exactly. No rideshare apps, any of that. Right. And so I was like, to make it more appealing to kids, you're not going to have to pay cover to get into the club because I've already negotiated the deal with the club owners. And the way I got the club owners to accept all of these kids to come into their clubs, uh, you know, how clubs, they usually try and keep people outside from like 10 to 11 to make it seem like the club is popping. But if I brought 50 people on a bus and just dropped them, you can let them in and the club is popping because that's an instant 50 people. And if I have multiple buses coming from a number of colleges, I could get you 100 people in your club right by the time your club opens. And so it went from having one bus leaving Stanford University to where I had buses leaving from Stanford, from Berkeley, from Santa Clara University, and they were coming from all over the Bay Area. And then I would just funnel them into the clubs that were cool with me, like whoever negotiated the best deal. I was like, then you're going to take all these college students, they're going to party and then they're going to leave early and safe back to their colleges. So now there's no more drunk driving accidents down the highway. And I was like, simple problem to solve. And that's from the kid that didn't go to Stanford. I'm like, you guys couldn't figure that out. And so that became a very lucrative opportunity for me because I ran that for a number of years, which is also what took my focus away from track and field. I think it was my first real successful entrepreneurial venture to where I went from being, I would say, a struggling track athlete because track athletes, we're not paid like basketball players or football players. Like we get a lot of gear. Yeah, I had a lot of Nike gear back then. You call coach if you needed shoes, shorts, mm -hmm. singlet, whatever, they hook you up. Right. But that doesn't, you can't eat shoes, <laughs> you know, like you have to figure out how you're still going to put food on your table, how you're going to pay your rent. And so although coach didn't want me running that business, when it quickly became so successful, he was like, you might want to stick with that. He goes, but do me a favor and stop having the guys work for you. Cause I was taking other Nike athletes <laughs> and I'm like, yo, can you man the bus coming from Berkeley and I'll man the one coming from Stanford. And so, and I was paying them to do that. And he's like, Ken, you can't have the guys partying all night with you on your buses and then showing up at track practice, like struggling the next day. And so eventually I had to let the guys go and then hire actual staff from the nightlife scene. But that was what I was doing. So that was like my early taste at being an entrepreneur. That's why you had the LAPD on speakerphone because you were a hustler. You knew how to negotiate. I was so like, oh, figured, we're doing this. I'm going to yeah. show these kids what a true <laughs> negotiation actually sounds Without like. Without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't just some blind, let me call up LAPD and hope that it's going to happen. I was right. like, I was already used to negotiating with the police just in moving my buses around. Right. Right. And I think by that point, I was only like 23 years old running that operation. At one point, I owned 12 Greyhound buses at age 24. <laughs> 12 Greyhound buses. You owned 
12 owned, Greyhound buses. You I was purchasing them. Yes. Like I went from chartering buses to eventually I hated that when I would charter buses, the drivers, when they see that you're making too much money, then they try and hustle you out of like what the cost uh, yeah. is for the bus by the end of the night. Or they would like make up stuff like, oh, someone got sick on the bus. So it's going to cost you an extra 250 mm. Or I didn't want anyone using the restroom on the bus because I have a corporate run tomorrow. So I'm going to charge you this. So I just got Mm. to the point where I was like, let me call Greyhound and find out whenever their buses reach high mileage to where they can't take them across the country, how much would you sell your high mileage buses to me for? And so I started buying these high mileage buses from Greyhound and I found this huge bus yard where I would park. I still don't have the CDL license and things to be able to drive the bus bus around, but I owned 12 of them. And so I would just have drivers come down and drive all of the passengers. I knew how to move the buses around the yard, but I would never take it out onto the street. But yeah, 24 years old, man, 12 Greyhound buses in a row. And they would go out every Friday and Saturday night. And eventually I had the drivers on on my own payroll. But that was like my first really successful venture. And I've had a number of others along the way, including what the Hollywood Half Marathon became. It went from just being the Hollywood Half Marathon to superhero events. And the reason why it became superhero events, I seemed to have a knack for getting first-time runners out to my events because of the way I marketed my races. My races were not for... It wasn't for the weekend warrior who wants to run a 5K, 10K half marathon every Saturday or Sunday. When you come to our races, it was like an experience. You come to pick up your runner's bib and you have to wear a suit or a tuxedo because our pickup isn't at a local running store. It's at the Hollywood Palladium with paparazzi there and a red carpet because we wanted to honor you as a runner, even if you've never run before. No matter how skinny or overweight you were, it didn't matter. Everyone was treated like a celebrity when you were coming to our events. And so we were really helping people find their inner superhero. And that's what led to creating that and why it did so well for a while, you know, for roughly about six years, we would have 10,000 people come out every year, which is insane for a first year half marathon. You're lucky if you get 600, 10,000, like, how is he doing this? And it was all in the marketing. Then the Boston Marathon bombing happened. Exactly. Yeah. It happened the same year that was our first year Hollywood half marathon. And so 2013 was our race and our race just happens to take place the first Sunday in April every year. And so that next day, Monday morning is Patriots day. And so as we're having our debrief meeting, and we're talking about ways to improve on the Hollywood half marathon. We're like, next year we should do this and do that. We got to become like them because they were so big and like everybody knows of the Boston marathon. And then boom, you see that breaking news headline that bombs had gone off at the finish line. And I just remember feeling like, man, who would bomb runners? Like my whole life, all of the runners that I have met have been some of the most kind, genuine and supportive people that I've met in my life from the coach to my teammates. When I went to college, same thing, coach Scott, my teammates there, they were all still my friends today. There were people who were looking out for me when I was with Nike, coach Frank, Mm my teammates there while we were up at Stanford. And it was just like, man, everybody 
along the way of my life, all of my favorite people were runners. And so I was like, any runners that are there, they have to be those same sort of people. And no one deserves to be attacked in such a way to be doing your sport, crossing the finish line and a bomb goes off. And even for the spectators that were there cheering for their families. And so I was just like, no, man, I have to do something about this because I felt like I owe the sport back, right? Like this sport took me out of homelessness. It got me to college. It gave me purpose. The only reason why I'm even able to talk to you right now, to have this conversation with you right now, literally is the confidence that I picked up through being a track athlete, right? And so I have always felt like I owe the sport big time because if it wasn't for running, I was sure I was probably going to go to the Air Force. Like I was already studying my ASVAB. That was my fallback plan was if I didn't get a scholarship to college, I was going to join the Air Force. And running changed that path for me. But more than that, it gave me confidence and a personality to be able to create other entrepreneurial ventures. And so I was like, you know, I have to do something. And that something initially I thought was going to be run in the race, but not just run it, but invite and encourage tens of thousands of other people to join me there, right? Because I had just come off of 10,000 people just ran Hollywood with me. Hey, you guys, let's go and make the next Boston the biggest Boston ever. And so they were like, word, okay. And so everyone starts registering to do it. And they're pledging on this site that I, I had made Actually, the page that I had created back then, it was actually called Free Hugs for Runners. <laughs> like that was the name of the, the whole brand. It was like a Facebook page, a website. It was called Free Hugs for Runners. And we're going to be a crew and we're going to go and run the Boston Marathon, tens of thousands of us to say that we're not intimidated by these acts of terror. And if you were to go to like even the Free Hugs Project Facebook page right now, I think you could sort back to the history of what, what the page used to be called. And it was Free Hugs for Runners. Where did that name come from? I felt like because of this bombing that took place, I was like, we have to figure out a way to like show love to the running community because they were hurting. And so I was like, free hugs for runners is like a healing way to how do we combat this terror attack that happened there? And so we were- I mean, run. were you in the shower? Like, did it just occur to you? You knew right away, this is it, free hugs for runners. That's what I'm supposed to, this is what I'm supposed to call yeah, it. Yeah, it was just, I, maybe it was in shower. I don't know, because ideas do come to me in the shower and in the plane, for sure. I feel like when I can't do anything else, then my ideas start spinning. And so it was probably one of those places, but mm -hmm. I was like, free hugs for runners just makes sense. We're going to go out there and run, but we're going to be like ambassadors of love when we go out and run this race. But most importantly, we're going to show that we're not scared of your acts of terror, that we're going to come back in bigger numbers. And so, because at that time, there was the whole Boston Strong movement that formed immediately in response. And so I was like, how do you set yourself apart from this huge movement of Boston Strong? Boston Strong was almost as bold a statement as those live strong bracelets in the nineties, right? Like Boston strong came out and everyone knew of those colors, the blue and the mm -hmm. gold right after the bombing. And so I was like, I want to associate myself with that, but I kind of want to carve my own lane. And so my own lane was free hugs for runners. And we were going to get tens of thousands of runners that were going to show up at the Boston marathon and we're going to run it. And we're going to be like emotional support for other people that are there. And I was the one who missed qualifying by a few seconds. Like you have to pick which race you're going to use to get into Boston to run as a qualifier. And at the time being under age 35, it's the fastest qualifying time to get in. It was three hours and five minutes. 
and you had to run three hours and five minutes flat. And I ran in the qualifier race and I ended up running three hours, five minutes, like 0.11 seconds. Mm. And so because of that, like it comes so close. Like, can you imagine training for something for an entire year and running in this race for three hours, feeling good and checking your watch and like, I'm right on pace, I'm right on pace. And in that year and three hours wasted from just 11 extra seconds, like 11 seconds, that's nothing. I could go down these stairs right here and come up in, in 11 seconds. What happened? Did you lose track of time or did you think you, was your clock slow or what, what, what happened? Two, I, two things I think happened. One, I cut it too close, but two, whether people believe it was God or the universe or whatever it is that people want to say it was, it was meant to have been missed because uh. in missing it led to what the next idea was, which was free hugs for runners needed to mean fly out there and literally hug people. Right. And that gave birth to that idea as I had to go back and tell my wife, like, look, I already bought tickets to Boston because I thought I was going to run in the race. So I'm going there anyway, and I'm going to cheer on all of these runners who took my pledge as the whole free hugs for runners movement was growing. And I was like, I'm going to go out there and just hug on as many people as I can. You ran twice, right? You tried to qualify, I tried to qualify twice within a times. week. And within a week. It, well, yeah, correct. So I first ran one seaside here in the Los Angeles area. So it was like a coastal race. It was mostly flat ground. And I was feeling good that whole way and missed it there by like 11 seconds. And so, and I ran that one on a Sunday. So by that Saturday, so literally the same week, it was in one week, I was like, then I have to run it again. And anyone who knows, if you've ever run a marathon, you don't run two marathons in one week. Like you're, you're still getting feeling back in your legs, right? And even worse, I said, well, I'm a better downhill runner than a flat runner. And so I said, I'm going to fly out to Utah where I knew all of their marathons come downhill. And so there was this race called the Big Cottonwood Marathon. And I was like, I'm going to run this one because it's going to force me downhill for the entire way of the marathon. And so I ran it and same thing coming down the hill. And I think this time it was like 305.9 or something like that. It's like, what? Twice? Like, and, and you came that close again. I almost wondered if I would have just skipped the LA one and went straight to Utah, would I have like blasted past that 305? And that's why I still think it was all fate. It was meant to be. I was not mm -hmm. supposed to run in the Boston Marathon. I tried it twice as an elite runner, as being in the top shape of my life. And I couldn't hold this pace for even just a few extra seconds to help me reach that goal. And in all of my running career, I had never shed tears at the finish line of a race until mm. after that big cottonwood race in Utah, because that feeling of defeat from like muscle aches and pain, but then also emotionally of saying, man, I was really doing this to be there with the people of Boston and I let them down. Like, I'm not going to be a part of this whole thing. And I've promoted it to everyone. Free hugs for runners was going on with or without me. Everyone was already like people who had the slower qualifying times or who were faster than me because they were marathoners. They were all going, I'm not a marathoner. I run one mile really fast. I don't run 26.2 <laughs> miles. And so there was a bunch of people that were going who took that pledge of free hugs for runners. But I was like, I'm not going to be able to make it. 
And so they went and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to put free hugs on a t-shirt and go out there anyway. And then that's what gave birth to the whole movement of what later became the free hugs project. And I didn't know that at the time, but until I stood out there on the race course and I was just hugging people as they were coming by, because I wasn't even sure that people would take me up on that offer, right? Like you're a black dude standing in Boston. Who's going to give you a hug (laughs) in Boston on a race course? And so I was like, well, I'll see what happens, you know, and if I don't get any hugs, it's all good. I gave it a try. But I had free hugs on a t-shirt. I held a free hug sign. And of course, the elite runners ran past me because they're racing for prize money. They're racing to win. But right after the elites went by, it took that one first person to break the ice and come and give me a hug. And strangely, back then, it was Doug Flutie, who was the former San Diego Chargers quarterback, which is crazy because... I live here in San Diego. And so it was so strange that out of 50,000 people that were running that race, this first dude that comes in and he's got like the American flag on his shorts and he kind of puts his arms in like an airplane motion and comes over to me and then gives me that hug, like flew into me and gives me that hug. And that was literally the first hug that I got in Boston. He had no clue who I am. Doesn't know that I'm from San Diego, but it was our former San Diego Chargers quarterback. And then he continues running on. But once he set that example, it broke the ice and thousands of people behind him started coming in and taking the hug. And just like back here, I had my camera with the tripod set up right behind me as everyone was running by because I wanted to document the experience. And so I took that video, uploaded it to YouTube and Facebook instant viral hit by the time I had made it back to my transfer from LAX back to San Diego. And I was just like, what just happened? And then it seemed like every news site in the country was either sharing the video of this feel good moment that happened at the Boston Marathon. I think it first started with BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed Mm -hmm. like snipped up animated GIFs of mm-hmm, snippets mm-hmm. of everything that was happening there. And they're like, and then this hug where this person jumped into his arms and this hug <laughs> where this person was wearing a tutu. And it was just this really feel good thing. And then they shared the link to the video. So the video just went nuts. And then it went from BuzzFeed to Huffington Post, New York Times, Boston Globe, started getting invited out to do TV shows from Good Morning America to flew out to London to do Good Morning Britain. All of these wow. websites talking about what inspired you to do this thing after this bombing took place? Like, why was free hugs your response? And so that led to that conversation. What did you experience that was unexpected from that first hugging event? I wished that the world could be like that all the time, you know, because I, after so many people coming in and sharing those hugs with me, It's like in those moments, you forget that you were the homeless kid who struggled with your own insecurities. And now all of a sudden, everybody sees you. And when I got back to the shelter with these kids that I was mentoring, and I'm talking with them about the experience as well. And they were saying the same thing, like, Ken, you have to keep this up. People can see us now, you know, and and I knew how much it meant to feel invisible, as did they. And we're now all of a sudden their mentor, uh, their peer mentor is like, on all these social media news sites. And so by the time I had landed and turned on my phone and I'm like, what is going on? This thing was a a viral hit. And just being a part of that experience, I had never had any sort of viral fame or viral success before. So I didn't know what that 
that entails. And then shortly after, when you're being called by all of these news sites to do an interview, it felt good. That was Ken Nwadike Jr. from episode 85. And in our next clip, we're going to hear from a conscious comedian named Jay Smiles, who I had the pleasure of interviewing back in episode 99. And I love Jay's story because, again, it's a story where she experienced a major unexpected life change that ended up disrupting all of her previous goals and put her on a completely different trajectory to becoming a stand-up comedian and to starting a podcast for caregivers, which was called Parenting Up. Long story short, Jay lost her dad unexpectedly to a heart attack. And then soon after that, her mother was diagnosed with dementia. And Jay was thrusted into the uncomfortable position of becoming a full-time caregiver. She had never caregiven in her entire life, so she had no idea what she was doing. And because of that, she started to get very stressed. She wasn't sleeping well. And the comedy and the podcasting became outlets for all of that stress that she was under. But as a desirable side effect she was able to then help other people laugh from the absurdity of her situation. And she also was able to give caregivers the inspiration to keep going through sharing her story in her podcast. Okay, we're going to start this clip from the point where Jay describes the direction that she thought her life was going in versus what actually ended up happening. Where'd you see your life going? Prior to your dad having the heart attack. Prior to my dad passing, I had the three academic degrees and the plan. It was well underway. And the ultimate goal was to have a tricontinental life between Europe and Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, mostly Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, Namibia. Those were the four countries that I had contacts in very specific, definite contacts around legal missionary work to assist current lawyers into helping raise equity for women and girls. Mm -hmm. And I'd already started doing that. In Italy, I would engage and work on product design pursuits. My passions for Product design and law didn't go anywhere. They were things that in my brain, I would have connections with like a stronghold in Milan and a stronghold in those areas that I mentioned in Africa. Then I would come back to the United States, making connections as necessary to bring those products and services to the U.S., for whatever it might be need, whether I need it at that time, if I maybe I'm bringing the products and services back for funding or for sales or whatever. So I'm spending like half a year to 18 months somewhere, half a year to 18 months somewhere, and I'm coming back and I'm circling. I'm more of a enthusiast, consultant, engager. And I'm just going to keep repeating that. Just rinse, repeat. Also, my father started collecting game-worn sports memorabilia back in the 1980s. And somewhere around the early 2000s, he had become the largest private collector of game-worn Western-based sports. I don't know if somebody has more 
cricket items or squash. I'm not getting into that. But if you're saying baseball, football, basketball, across the Western-based sports, nobody had more than my father had acquired. And it was a source of pride and a great deal of family input. So my goal was to then, as I made more connections in Europe and Africa, to eventually have that prime pieces of it circling the globe with virtual and or live tours to really impact people with the stories. Cause like I have Jesse Owens track cleats for 1936 Olympics when he got the four gold medals in front of Hitler. I have an original pair of gloves from Jack Johnson. I also have one of four known Babe Ruth jerseys when he was with the New York Yankees. So I have male and female, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, game-worn stuff. Italian, I have a Mario Andretti, full racing suit. And that's what I was setting out to do. I was like, this is it. I want to get better and better and make more connections. My thing has always been around, I'm a global citizen, and how can I make the world a better place? I want to leave more than I take out of it. That was the plan. And it was coming together. (laughs) Then dad dies. What we've just been discussing, it happens about three years into caregiving. For those three years, I was only caregiving. I was managing my mother's CPA firm, managing my father's law firm. The best way to say it is I'd opened the first African-American equity-owned business on the Strip in Las Vegas, and it was a sports memorabilia gaming experience. So I had those things going on while I was trying to also handle my father's estate and learn how to be a caregiver. Tremendous amount of stress and people suing me. Hey, guys, I didn't know trying to wife me, trying to come up into what they thought might be. Come up. And I was like, hey, what are you talking about? What? No, get out of here. Silly guy. Should have got on that train earlier. You can't come in here talking about, hey, I know you. That's stupid. Then nobody teach you that you got to act like you don't know. But I was like, you don't even have good. You don't even have. Three or so years into that, I'd gained about 50 pounds. My cholesterol, my blood pressure, everything was going in the wrong direction. I walked into a wall, not meaning to, thought I was having a heart attack or a stroke. Turns out it was a severely inflamed pinched nerve. That was my wake up call. Mm. You got to do something differently. I started looking for a hobby. Like I need a hobby that takes me out of all of this somewhere where I'm not Janae Smith. Because anywhere I walked in that time as Janae Smith, people knew what had happened. My my dad was a Google alert before I knew that dude was dead. He was kind of a big fish in his area. So it was too much. And I was like, I need to go somewhere where nobody knows me. Nobody wants anything. I need a new hobby because I got to let life off. And that's where comedy came in. I did not know I would fall in love with this heifer. <laughs> Comedy caught me by the heart and pulled it up out of my throat. And it was, she was like, ah, Jay, I've been waiting on you. And I was like, well, why you ain't say nothing? Been over here doing all this other stuff. Then <laughs> family and friends were like, you've been funny. I don't know what you took so long. I was like, really? Why did nobody say? So I basically was on kind of like a 
a janky version of Groupon. Like it really wasn't Groupon, but it was kind of Groupon-y. Just kind of looking like it's going to be glass blowing or beer making. I just need something that's fun. I want to meet some new people. It's going to walk in and say, hey, I'm Jay. How you doing? Yeah, let's learn how to crochet. Two hours a day on a Saturday for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Comedy popped up. I fell in love with it. I knew it by like the second class because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was getting into writing the jokes. I was sweating like I was out somewhere running a marathon. I'm at my desk writing a stupid joke. I look down and I have like wet ring under my armpits and sweat running down my back. And I was like, damn it. <sighs> Cause I knew what that meant. Right. I lived enough life to know. I was like, I got, got, damn it. I got, got, I got, got, but I don't even have time to like nothing. Oh, man. I don't have time. This was not. <laughs> anyway, it happened. But for the first couple of years of comedy, I didn't talk about being a caregiver to circle back to that point. I didn't bring it up. I didn't talk about being mm-hmm. Jay. I didn't talk anything about caregiver, my dad, my background, nothing. I only talked about the world, current affairs and life experiences, because remember, I was going to comedy to escape my real life. I didn't want to talk about I was trying to not deal with it. And how did that shift occur to become the conscious comic? Charm, the universe, mother nature. It wouldn't let me not. You know, you start just writing jokes and you're writing jokes and it's just started coming out of my spirit. I meditate, you know that, but I want your listeners to know. And it got to a point where who I am had to come out because I became serious about being a comedy, a comedian. And once I decided, okay, I'm serious. I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to have a website. I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to do, I'm going to do more than open mics. Once I made the decision that this is not just open mics, I'm going to go grab a glass of wine or a beer every couple of weeks and just do three minutes. Then it became, well, I don't want to get up there lying. Hmm. That's disingenuous. And that's not who I am. I don't do anything else like that. So why would I do this? And I'm so passionate about the art form. And I know, Hmm. I feel like, you know, you got politicians, preachers, professors, comedians. Who else can command an audience? You get the mic and like everybody's listening. What are you going to say, Jay? I've come of age as a comedian during a time you got Black Lives Matter. You got people grabbing women by the crotch. I'm like, I got to say something. And my point of view, I'm coming from the hotbed of, you know, civil rights and the cradle of the Confederacy. And then I have all this corporate experience. I've been to all seven continents. I've lived in three or four other nations. And so it started coming out in my jokes, but it was the pandemic. The pandemic made caregiving be a part of my comedy. I didn't have a choice. The same way I didn't have a choice to be a comedian. I didn't have a choice to keep caregiving out of my material in a very real way. Soon as COVID hit, I tried to fight Mm -hmm. it. I ignored it. The universe was like, all right. Okay. Okay. I was like, ah, no, 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 I don't want to do it. <laughs> I lost. <laughs> but that's when you started your podcast too, right? During the pandemic. Correct. Parenting up podcast where you sort of bring together all of the things you're passionate about. Storytelling, comedy, 
your experiences in caregiving. Why did you think that was important? To do it? Yeah, to make your podcast about the caregiving adventures. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but like when I tell you I didn't have a choice about that follow the charm, you know, when you get to the corner, you're supposed to go left or right. What did intuition tell you to do? I started meditating in 2015. Mm-hmm. And in December 2015 is when I started meditating. March 2015 is when I started comedy. I've been working very intently and intentionally on building my intuition muscle. And I didn't even want to do a podcast. Again, I don't have time to add anything. I'm barely stand above water with what I'm already responsible for or the things I at least have agreed to do because everything in this world is a choice. I could get up from this mic right now and walk out on you and what you're going to do and nothing you can do, right? Like everything's a choice. I could leave my mama today. What's she going to do? Nothing. Like you could just, whatever, everything's a choice. But I already had so much on my plate. I was like, Jay, what do you mean? How are you going <laughs> to? But it wouldn't let me go. And it was very clear what continued to come to me during meditation in moments of quiet. We had been in lockdown probably less than six weeks, definitely not two months for sure. And it was, you're going to do a podcast and you're talking to caregivers. Like the podcast, I was very clear. The mission was not to just deal with, oh, Jay Smiles, you got to figure out how to do comedy, right? Because a lot of comedians or a lot of artists or entertainers made a podcast about their craft because all of a sudden, if you can't perform, figure out how to take it to a digital medium. And it was clear, like, nope, mm-mm, this has nothing to do with your standup. You are supposed to talk to caregivers. They are hurting. I was getting that from caregivers. People who know that I'm caregivers were DMing me. What are you doing? How are you taking care of your mom? How are you not going crazy? And I was like, you know, I'm Jonah. <laughs> That's what I tell all my friends all the time. I am so Jonah in the Bible. Like Jonah didn't want to do nothing. So whether you're Christian or not, just know it ain't but five pages in the Bible. Okay. Jonah didn't want to do nothing. He was always running from whatever he was supposed to do. And I'm Jonah. And I was like, it's the only five pages I know. I don't even know what nothing else is in the Bible. Whatever. That's not a point. So, and it came to me. It's like, you're supposed to talk to caregivers and you're supposed to tell your story and it's supposed to be funny. Don't try to get into statistics or pills and doctors and tests. Just tell your story. Talk to other caregivers. If you tell your story, it will help people. And everything I've ever done has to pass through that eye of the needle. In my 20s, I thought I wanted to make money more than I had a mission. By my early 30s, I knew that I wasn't driven by that. I'm just not, period. Like mission over money for me, period. Impact over income. That's just who I am. I show up better when the mission aligns with my values and who I am. And so helping caregivers during the pandemic, that was a reason at two o'clock in the morning after I get my mom to finally go to sleep to come to cut these damn lights on. I'm like, all right, hey, it's Jay Smiles. Like, but if I was just kind of trying to come to figure out how to do a set in the dark with some lights to ask people to put 99 cent on my Patreon account, like I wouldn't have done that. I just wouldn't have. I wouldn't have had the consistency because I wouldn't have given a shit. I would have been like, I don't. How many 99 cents do I need to buy some coffee? Like by the time the IRS, I'm like, but I'm on every continent. 
And I have people who barely speak English sending me things like I legit was about to quit my mama until I heard season whatever episode, whatever. And if you can do it, I can do it, too. I'm like, bet. let me go do my next episode. Like that is what leads me. But I did not have a plan to become a podcaster. I am following intuition and the spirit. You're going to do a podcast and it is for caregivers. And Jay Smiles is doing it. It was also very clear. My legal name, Janae Smith. She is not doing this podcast. It's never her perspective. It's always Jay Smiles. And I'm very clear. I get in the right head, mind, frame, whatever, before I do the recording. I don't think Janae or JG was what my mom calls me. I don't think she could be so transparent because it was too painful. Like Jay Smiles is telling JG's story. It's like Jay Smiles is JG's best friend who happens to know everything. But JG would probably be crying every third word. Like, that's who I meant. That was Jay Smiles from episode 99. And we have one clip left. This is our final clip where we're going to hear the incredible story of a man named Joseph Bradford, who started a one-man food bank in Southern California called Bear Truth. And this is a clip from way back in episode number 47, but it's one of those episodes that I still personally go back and listen to to this day because of Joseph's drive and determination and his wonderful storytelling. And his life journey kind of reminds me of that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that Christmas movie with Jimmy Stewart who played George Bailey, who was the guy that wanted to end his life because he thought he was better off dead than alive? Well, Joseph didn't want to end his life or anything, but the plot point that reminds me of Joseph's story in It's a Wonderful Life is that George wanted to see the world. And there were always these things that kept happening that would hold him back. And then when his father passed away, he had to take over the family business, which meant he never had a chance to leave his small town. But he ended up doing a lot of good for many people in the community. And so Joseph's desire for his whole life was to get out of Kansas City. He grew up with a bunch of siblings where he was basically having to take care of him because his dad was not in the picture. They didn't have any money. There were drugs involved with his parents. And he just wanted to get out. He just wanted to see the world. And he ended up finding himself in Los Angeles where, you know, he's surrounded by all the opportunities and Hollywood and all the lights. But he ended up becoming a community servant. And it happened in the most unexpected way. And that's what this clip is about. It's about how Joseph surrendered to this inner calling that he had one night really, really late after leaving a restaurant and giving a homeless person his food and how that snowballed into this movement that he started called Bear Truth. What was your idea for your life at this point now that you're finishing up commuter school? I just knew there was a world bigger than Kansas City and I wanted to see it. And this was my opportunity. I got accepted to Florida. I'm out. I'm going to Florida. And then now I've been in Florida for a couple of years. You know, now it's like, well, I want to go to L.A. Literally, it was that like I want to go to Los Angeles to see what it is. And at the time, you know, I'm young. I have been working. So I saved some money. Save, I had like four thousand dollars. I didn't like a lot of money, but I'm young. I don't have no kids. I don't have no responsibilities. It's just me and my work ethic 
is good enough to where I find a job. That's how I looked at it. I find a job. I never had no problem finding a job before. So I find a job and I just wanted to go and see it. And literally me and my cousin drove, drove to LA, ran out of gas twice, hitchhiked once. We was good. <laughs> yeah, we, we was good. I ended up finding a job in a month. I lived out in the valley. Most expensive rent that I've ever had. I didn't know places cost as much. Uh, when I moved out here because, you know, I'm from a smaller city where it's rent ain't this bad in Orlando in Florida, the rent ain't that bad. Mm-hmm. And three months later, guess what? Now my brothers are living out here with me. I had some issues in Kansas City. My mom was going through a few things and now I have my brothers again. Not again, but now they're with me. I had to enroll them in school. I had to now be be dad again, you know, while I'm trying to work and take care of my brothers during this time as well, my mother was having some issues. So Bruce was now by this time, her and Bruce had got back together. And so he was supposed to help me. He was supposed to help out with my brothers coming out here. And he ended up dying. Then come to find out he had a drug problem too. So Mm -hmm. here it goes again, somebody else with a drug problem. And now Mm -hmm. they're not here doing what they told me that they was going to do. Because when I moved to Florida, it was like, oh, you know, I'll help you. I'll, you know, do whatever, you know, try to help out. Cool. And then now I got my brothers literally three months after I moved to to Los Angeles. No help again. I got to figure it out. And from there, it was like we were, I was just, I moved to Vegas for like a year. Because by this time, the girl that I was dating, she had a little daughter. And I had my youngest brother still with me. So I was trying to be more the family guy. Did you have proper jobs at this time? Yeah, but not like the greatest jobs ever. Like the first job that I got when I when I got here, I was doing maintenance. I was doing maintenance for this property in Reseda. Mm-hmm. That was the first job. But then by this time when I started, when I moved to Vegas, I was actually working. I was doing maintenance for 24-hour fitness. So I was actually getting paid something kind of decent. And that was now I'm like 24 or something like that. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't that bad. But like I said, now moving to Vegas, it was cheaper. It was cheaper and it was like, oh, I can do this. And I was able to get a house and all that other stuff. And like I said, I had the girlfriend with the young daughter and my brother put him in school as well. So it was uh, wasn't that bad either. Then we ended up moving back to California. And how did you get introduced to the population on Skid Row? So fast forward, it was really kind of sitting there with not really doing much for my life because I ended up getting hurt at a job. And so I had a lot of like free time because I was acting and modeling for one point because I didn't have anything else to do. I was on work much time for years. And so after I kind of got out of that, it really was a pull on my life to do something different. And like, I felt incomplete. So really it was in those moments trying to figure out what am I going to do? And I used to promote clubs in Hollywood. So we end up going out every night and I end up giving a guy half of my meal. And then, you know, just started thinking like, damn, he wouldn't want half a meal. Like, let me get him his own meal. And that's kind of how the birth of it was, because I would see the same guy outside of uh, Denny's and Roscoe's in Hollywood every night. Every night I would see him. And we after you talk. finished promoting at a club, you would. After we went out, yep. Went out to go to Roscoe's, get some food. Mm-hmm. And now it's like three, four in the morning and I would see him and then I would end up talking to him after a while. 
gave him the food. And then it was like, hey, man, why are you out here every night? And then just kind of started doing it. But like I said, that pull on my life, because we once were homeless, you know, it was an easier conversation. When I would ask my friends, like, hey, can you buy another meal? We can give out two meals tonight. And nobody would do it. So I just did it by myself. When you saw this guy, who did you see? Did you see yourself? Did you see your dad? Did you see somebody you cross paths with? No, I just seen somebody that needed help. And that correlated with my life because all along here, I feel like my life would have been a little bit better if people helped me. Mm -hmm. I always had to struggle to do different things. And I always wish that like, damn, I wish somebody could help. Somebody could help me. If somebody could help me, I can move. I could move this journey along a lot faster when my car broke down or when this, you know, if somebody was there to help me, if I could call back and say, Hey, can I get $600 to fix my car? That would have been a great help. And so for me, it was like just that compassion to, to help and want to help and really listen to him and what he was going through. When your friends refuse to help to even Mm -hmm. buy one meal, what what do Mm -hmm. you think the psychology of that is? It was all about self for them because they were going to do whatever they was going to do. And I didn't necessarily like it because my friends at that time were just the only people that I knew when I just first moved to California. Essentially, I was kind of forced to be around them because then I needed, I wanted somebody to be around because I'm used to having all my siblings around, you know, as much as I didn't want them around, but now when I'm gone, it's like, ah, this is boring by myself. And I spent a lot of time by myself moving and doing different things. And, and so me and those same group of friends back then, we're not even friends today. I know them, but like they're not a part of my journey and what I'm doing today because we just grew apart because I always knew that that wasn't really what I wanted. That was just where I was forced to be at that moment. So you started buying the guys a couple meals and then what happens? Yeah. So buying the, buying the guys a couple meals and I just kind of kept doing it, not as regular at that time, but I just did it here and there, here and there. And then I really kind of created a plan for housing because I was where I was living. That was my biggest bill, you know, my rent. And I wanted to reduce the amount of rent, but I also wanted to provide people housing because then I would see now more people now on the streets. So now at this point, I'm conscious of homelessness. We always knew it. You know what I mean? But now I'm very conscious of it. Like, damn, it's a lot of people over here or me walking around at two in the morning I didn't seen Stan over there. I've seen John over there. I actually now know them by name. And it's like they're sleeping outside when they could be sleeping inside. So like I really outline a vision on how to reduce my rent and eventually one day like get housing. And so what I did is I created a plan as far as if I manage the properties, if I became a property manager, then I could live there for free. But then also I targeted companies that helped homelessness. So then now I wanted to be a property manager for places that worked with homeless people, because then for me, I didn't know enough people to be able to ask the questions. So what I did is I worked there. It was like a paid internship. If I worked there, I worked inside of the mode. Now I can learn. I can ask the questions. I can look at the paperwork. I can see who's coming in and how they were doing it. Because this in my life, I've never been... I just don't feel like I've been fortunate enough to know the right people. So it's always been a struggle to get information and in how people's doing, it. especially now I'm living in a big city like Los Angeles, people doing a bunch of stuff out here, but I don't know them. So now let me work there. And that's what I did. I start working at a property management company first. Well, I lied and said I did it in college. 
to get me in the door. And I moved from my one bedroom apartment to a studio apartment, like unbelievably small. But now I'm a property manager. I don't have rent. So now that provided me the flexibility to now go out and now seek these other companies. So then when I found a larger company that actually did what I wanted to do, end up applying there. But now I actually have the skill set that they need because I didn't have it before, but this was a smaller company, so it was fine. But now I'm going to this bigger company. And that's where, you know, it was a very strategic plan how I went in there and introduced myself and how I got that job. And then from there, it just, I worked for them for like six years, learning how they get into people, where they get into people, like, what does this mean? Like, and meeting the social workers and just kind of really talking to them and going to the de-escalation training. And I literally said yes to everything that they wanted me to do because in my plan too, I'm also now figuring out their truth and like what I wanted to do with that. And at that point, I didn't even have a name for the organization as well, but it was literally like, okay, God, this is the speed. This is where I need to be, but not necessarily for working for somebody, but kind of how can I make it better? Because then I also noticed a bunch of flaws within what they were doing. And I also, because now I'm the property manager, I'm depositing like $30,000, $40,000 every month into somebody else's account. And they don't even treat the people as good as I know that there has to be a better way. And so that's where like really the birth of it, because when I did it, I didn't necessarily know it was going to be what it is today. I just knew that the passion for the homelessness because of what we went through before. And also now I'm actually getting to know these people and like now hearing their stories versus just walking past them. Like I did all the other years or drop a dollar here and there, you know what I mean? But it was literally that. But then I also remember even when I would drop the dollar, I always had like a little slight conversation with people like, Hey, what you doing? Don't, you know, and I would really tell them it was my thing. Hey man, do something good with it. Because in my brain, I'm trying to steer them away from drugs and alcohol because for me, that's probably why they're here. But now for mm-hmm. me, I didn't lost everybody due to drugs and alcohol. So mm-hmm. I didn't want, I didn't want that. So yeah, I want to help you, but it's like I don't want to feed into your habit. So that wanting to help you now with my organization goes even further because now I can give you housing to really move you off the streets. And then now work on those other little issues. But like, I got to get you safe first. And that was always my thing. See, because it still goes back to helping people, like getting you safe and making sure you're good. As best as my ability, obviously, because now we're adults, you know, but still it was it was that housing is a you make sure people good because we I've been I've been without a house before. Like we had to sleep in the car, you know, a little bit in the snow or be in a house with no heat. Like, I get it. So how can I make sure that other people don't have to go through this? So you're in your mid to late 20s at this point? Yeah, by this time. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of people in that age, they're just looking to make as much money as possible. or They're looking to go on as many dates as possible. Right, right, right. And you're sitting around thinking, how can I get all these homeless people off the street and get them safe into houses? Right. Right. Right? That's what you were thinking about. Yeah. Was there a motivation underneath that? Like, were you looking to make that into a business? Not at that time. I wasn't, no, I wasn't looking to make it into a business. I was just looking to do it because I had, you know, been trying to do stuff. We, after working all these in jobs, I remember crying in Griffith Park telling my mom I wanted to go. And she told me, 
literally, she said, your job is not done yet. And I didn't understand what she meant. That kind of stuck with me. Like my job is not done. And so now this became like my job and kind of were infatuated with it because of my natural desire is to help people. So that personality test when I was in high school about being a doctor, helping people, it's still there. It's mm. still like that's at the core of who I am. Me being the oldest, as much as I hated being the oldest, but like I do get joy taking care and making sure people are good, mm. even though I hated it, you know, and I used to run away from that responsibility, but like it wouldn't leave me because that's at the core. That's who I am. So and I sacrificed a lot of money and everything else by doing it this route. And your mom knew what you were doing. Is that why she said that your job is not done? What was she referring to? She said, if you came back to Kansas City, you wouldn't be happy. And she said, as much as I want you to be here, obviously close to me, I just know that you wouldn't be happy being here because one, she know I don't like the cold weather, but I'm pretty sure she wasn't thinking that. But for me, I like the opportunity to be great. And at that time, I probably wasn't able to articulate it in a way that I may be able to do it now. But I feel like she was wise enough to see that in me. You know, like everybody around here is not doing nothing. You know, like your friends, she might even still see some of my friends is like this. They're not doing nothing. And I'm out here now meeting people, whether we was promoting clubs and I'll tell her like, mom, I seen Snoop. She really loves Snoop. You know, but even like little stuff like that, because of where we grew up, that doesn't happen for us. So she clearly seen in it somewhere the excitement or knew something else about me that I didn't know about myself to say your job is not done. And she wouldn't like let me come back home, even though obviously I could. But she wouldn't. She was like, no, you need to stay there and figure it out. And it was like, I guess maybe she didn't want me to quit either because she know that's not who I am, you know. So it was so many different things of like why she might have felt that way. And I know some of it is how she might feel about her own life or what she didn't do. Or maybe when she'd been scared to move or, you know, jump outside of her comfort box. And then she don't want that for us. So that's why I love her for that, because she, you know, a lot of my motivation and what I do right now is because of my mama and for her support, even though it wasn't financial, even though when I was a kid, I wish she had more money or did whatever else. But she always loved us and she never gave up on us. And this was a perfect example. When I wanted to give up on myself, she didn't give up on me. She made me look in the mirror and keep pushing forward. Were you a one man show at this time or did you have help? No, I was a one man show at this point because then it wasn't an organization. It was Mm -hmm. now I'm working for this company, you know, and I'm in in a sense still in a resources or how or like we getting food donations from them. And I sidebar to people, Hey man, like I go out at night. Can I get some food too? And so I would literally be driving uh, around the city or, you know, the bridges by my house. I used to get the food from seven elevens, you know, that they were going to throw away. And just because of the date, even though it wasn't bad, but per their rules, they have to throw it away. And I literally, they used to tell me no, cause they didn't want to get sued, but I was persistent and I just kept going back please, man, can I get it? Like, can I get it? I don't want to dig it out the trash, but I will, you know? And then it was like, once one seven eleven was good, then he was like, oh, call my buddy. I'm going to call him right now. Tell him you're going to go get the food over at that 7-Eleven. And now I had like five or six 7-Elevens that was giving me food all the time. And I would go do that. I would be walking around the promenade, you know, in Santa Monica at three in the morning, 
passing out food. But then I'm also always talking to these people. You know, I'm talking to them. I actually know them by name or, you know, they looking forward to now me coming. And then it was like, oh, well, I know the people at the building that I'm managing, they go to this mental facility. Hey, why don't you go here? Just tell them I sent you because now I know the people, too, because now I work at the job. And so that's where it was like, this was great. By this time now, I did create the name. Literally, I'm a guy that when I hear something or you say something good to me or whatever, I keep it in my notes. And really, one day when I wanted a name for now, what I'm doing, like it was in my notes, not in the order, but it was there. And it literally kind of shifted. Like I watched the letters (laughs) kind of form and it was like bare truth. Like it was there. So now by this time, now I got the shirts printed up. And I remember I was in Culver City passing out some food one guy and this guy said, Hey, are you a nonprofit? And I didn't have a clue what this man was even talking about. And I was like, nah, he was like, damn, man, I was going to give you some money, but you can't even give me a write-off. And it hurt because it's like, I'm seeing the humanity of people from a random stranger that I don't know, but now I can't provide him what he needs. And that happened to me too many times over the course now, of maybe like two years, because now I'm focused on doing the work. I was like, I just got to give these people the food or the clothes or whatever else I can, you know, give them. And I didn't really understand the business side and why that was so important. So I was doing the work for years before I turned it into a official business. So this is sounding a lot like a full-time job. Are you working on a part-time job no, to I, make no, ends st- meet? No, I'm still working at, I'm managing an apartment. I managed an apartment building. So I did that literally by day. And I was like Superman at night or Batman at night, <laughs> you know, because and then I would be killing myself because I'm up, you know, going around the 7-Elevens, picking up food and then like going to pass it out and trying to find. By yourself in your yeah. car. And every once in a while, maybe the girl I was dating or whatever would come out with me or I could maybe get one of my friends. But for the most part, consistently, it was always me. It's what did like, your no, friends think about this? The, they know that you had this altern, alternate life? Yeah, they knew. But they do. And they just was like, oh, you know, be careful. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like literally, because then now I'm starting to see stuff and do stuff or whatever, you know, and I tell them about it. And it was like, oh, OK. And like I said, sometimes people would come. But it was like everybody that I knew at that point always had their own separate agendas, you know, doing whatever. Exactly. And it. And it and it was frustrating because then I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm doing this good. Why is nobody helping me? Like, why is nobody with me? Why wouldn't nobody come out? Like, yeah, I know I'm tired in the morning, too, but you can come with me. And like, I just wish that people, you know, seen the vision at that time. So let's say somebody's listening to this and they're doing something on their own. They're a one man show mm-hmm. and they want to recruit help. Now that you've had all this experience looking mm. back now, because you mm. have volunteers now, is there yes. something you could have done or said that could have enrolled people to help you a little bit easier? In my experience, honestly, it wasn't the people that I knew. I had to step outside of that bubble. And it was complete strangers that started coming with me. It, unfortunately, it sucks to say that. But then I also say for me, too, like my family in Kansas City would have helped. I believe that they would have helped. But I was just in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? So who, so who was, was your first volunteer? My barber. <laughs> you were, He's cutting your hair and you're like, hey, my man, barber. I'm going out tonight to 70 Lumber. you want to come? My barber gave me $200 and I cried right there because it was like, he actually believes in me. Yep. Mm-hmm. He gave me $200. That was the first, like the first time. I mean, people gave me like a dollar, $10 or something, but he gave me $200. 
That actually makes sense because your barber's like your therapist, right? He's listening yeah. to your story. <laughs> and I'll be talking time. to him. Yeah. Yeah. He he really, he he really supported that. And like I said, it made me, it was like one of those confirming moments where it was like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I got him to, you know, I got my barber to give me $200. And mind you, his job is to collect money from me. I paid him for a service and he gave me $200 and he said, I believe in you. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Prior to that, you weren't even sure if you were doing what no. you were supposed to do. No, I was just doing what I felt was right, regardless of what people said about me, what, regardless of what, you know, why would you want to go out there with those people? You know, it was always something. And it was like, mind you, these are now people that that came to like my my kids birthday parties at this point. Like, my, you know, these are close people to me that wouldn't support or wouldn't help out or do nothing, like literally nothing. Maybe they prayed for me, you know what I mean? But that's about it that I know. And that's what I would always say. It made no sense. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't understand it. But then for me, I'm always the, on the flip side of that. You want to do something? Let's go do it. Let's, let's, you know, but they didn't. And I appreciate them for that because then it, it made me work harder to prove to them that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And I still welcome them in today. You know, I have a little conversation with them now, but I welcome them in because we need the the help and support. And a lot of people told me, hey, man, I didn't I didn't see it. I didn't know what you were doing. I didn't get it or whatever else they told me. And I was like, well, thank you. I'm glad you see it now. Thank you so much for listening to our year end compilation episode about making something out of nothing. I hope you found it inspiring enough to do your version of making something out of nothing. Whatever you've been feeling in your heart as something that you're being called to do, just remember you don't need the entire blueprint. You don't need some massive budget. You don't need all the resources. Just like all of the guests in this episode, all you need to do is take the next step with whatever you have, right? However small or insignificant those resources may seem to other people, don't wish for an easy path or for everybody to support you right off the bat. Instead, wish for the courage to follow your heart, no matter where it's directing you, with the understanding that it will never, ever lead you astray and that all of the resources that you will ultimately need will come to you from taking step after step after step. And if you visit lightwatkins.com slash show, you can find the full episodes to every clip or you can search our archive of past interviews with other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. People like Young Pueblo, who you've probably seen his poetry on Instagram, or Ava DuVernay, you've probably seen some of her films on Netflix, or Ed Milet, you've probably seen some of his motivational videos on YouTube, and so many more. You can also search the interviews by subject matter, in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith, or people who've overcome financial struggles, or people who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins Podcast on YouTube and you'll come across my channel. You'll see the entire playlist 
of past episodes. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of each podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you like hearing all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode, you can listen to all of that by joining my online community, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to the unedited versions of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, as well as other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me continue to bring you the best guests possible in the new year, it would go a long way if you could just take 10 seconds to rate the podcast. And all you do to rate the podcast is you glance at your screen, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past the first seven or eight episodes, you'll see a space with five blank stars and just tap the star all the way on the right and you've left a five-star rating. And if you want to go a step further and leave a review, maybe just type one episode that you recommend a new listener should consider starting with as an introduction to this podcast. It could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. Thank you so much in advance for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.